We're here today with two attorneys from the B Hall Law Group, John and Jack, and we're going to do a little intro of who the B Hall Law Firm is. Jack, why don't you tell us a little bit about B Hall and some of the practice areas that you participate? In? Curtis, we handle a number of things. Uh, personally, I handle transactional work like contracts and real estate. I also try cases, although I haven't tried as many cases as John and. I want Columbus to know that John is one of the best trial lawyers in the city. The firm also handles, that is my partners handle, probate and estate matters, family law, and John still tries personal injury cases. Well, okay. <laughs> so so how many how many attorneys do you have in the practice? We have seven lawyers. There's five partners. We've got two associates. Our firm motto is, we mean business. So I usually tell people we're primarily a business law firm. But with that comes a lot of litigation. My background is in trial civil litigation, meaning I don't do any criminal work other than a few criminal appellate cases I still take. But Jack and I are the trial lawyers of the firm. And I like to tell people, if you're going to court, to see a judge or a jury, we're the type of lawyer you want to have with you in court. Okay, excellent. Well, and you guys are located down on South High Street at... 501 South High Street. I was going to say 901, so I was 400 away, but that's good. Close enough. Well, good deal. Well, we're going to be doing these podcasts to kind of educate and highlight some interesting topics. And the one topic that we're talking today is about tort reform. And one of the tort reform topics deals with a case from the Simpkins. And when you, if you pause for a minute and think about the word tort or tort reform, lawyers, we all went to law school. We all took the same courses in law school and were taught the same way. And we spend the first year in a class called torts. And until law school, I didn't know that there was a word torts, let alone a whole body of law around torts. What's happened over time is that the tort law has developed through what we call case law, judges making decisions. But in the more recent era, statutory laws come about that has changed what we generally think of as tort law. Tort law is when somebody gets hurt, they have a case against somebody else for legal damages. It may be medical malpractice, a car collision, maybe a trip and fall or a dog bite. But generally, if you think of torts, you think of somebody being injured due to somebody else's negligence. Right. So when you think about tort reform, one of a great study cases would be the Simpkin case. And that's what we would like to focus on to give our listeners a little bit of an idea of how the law works and and how it, uh, I guess, in a better sense, doesn't work. Right, Jack? Yeah, I think you've said it well how it doesn't work because the reality is because of some of the statutes that have been passed and some decisions from the Ohio Supreme Court, in effect, like it or not, we have two justice systems in Ohio. And I think to give us more of an introduction to that big subject, John, why don't you talk about the facts of the Simpkins case? Curtis, you may have heard about this case in the news, but this is the young girl, I think she was 15 years old, and she was uh, sexually assaulted by a senior pastor at the Grace Brethren Church, Sunbury Church. And the case ended up going to trial resulted in a substantial verdict for this young lady. In addition to the assault, she had a claim of emotional injuries that I think we can all sympathize with and understand how devastating those can be. A jury determined that she was entitled to $3.5 million for her emotional injury. Unfortunately, under Ohio law, the legislature has capped 
damages in Ohio at $350,000. So following the jury trial, the judge, following the statutory law that that the judge had to, reduced her damages down to $350,000. The attorneys for this young lady took that case to the 10th district, lost, and then took it to the Ohio Supreme Court and I guess in our minds, a terrible decision out of the Supreme Court upholding the caps on damages for this type of injury. So that brings up a good question then. Would there have been a different way to have approached this case than what they did, or is it pretty streamlined? Uh, No, there was only one way to approach it, because in, in this type of a tort, the emotional damages are really the damages that she okay. suffered. So the statute does the, the statute that caps damages has an exception for things like permanent injury, right? Lo- loss of an appendage, things of that nature. Okay. And so the attorneys were trying to fit this future permanent emotional distress into one of those exceptions, and that's essentially what the Supreme Court said, you can't do that doesn't say it in the statute, therefore the caps apply. I think one of the exceptions is a permanent physical disability of great significance, right? And the attorneys on appeal with the Supreme Court said, well, wait a minute, this is a significant emotional disability. Isn't the statute unconstitutional because it doesn't recognize this injury for this young woman? Right. And the court said, no. The other thing that uh, I guess from a trial perspective and being a trial lawyer for 30 years now, the uh, Constitution guarantees us a right to a jury trial. In a very simplistic sense, you would think that means a verdict from a jury. In this case, the jury isn't told there are caps. They're never told on, on tort reform cases that might exceed the caps. All the jury is told is to award fair and full damages. Right. So presumably the jury awarded fair and full damages, including the $3.5 million for this loss, and were never told that the court the next day was going to reduce it to 350000 To a lot of lawyers, that sounds like a violation of this young lady's right to a jury trial and a right to the jury determining the case, but the court walked itself around that and said, no, in fact, it's not. Okay. Well... I guess one of the things we want to take a a look at, the actual facts versus what made the news. Obviously, in this day and age, we have, you know, fake news and, you know, fake facts and fake this. And, you know, so what uh, what was the actual facts versus what made the news? I don't think there were any fake facts ever offered about the Jessica Simpkin case. I think when you talk about fake news, so to speak, to use a a current phrase, it's sort of fake news that got us into tort reform. And what I mean by that is if you look back when the tort reform statutes first started coming about, which was, what, John, in the early 90s, give or take? Probably. Nationwide. Maybe, I say maybe, one of the first cases was the that McDonald's coffee case, which I think took place in Texas. And if you recall, there was an elderly woman She buys a cup of coffee from McDonald's, and she severely burned around her thighs and groin. All right, so the news that gets spread around is the notion of this crazy old lady who's driving around with a cup of coffee in her lap. And so when the verdict of something like $1.2 million is announced, 
while the case is heralded, heralded as an example of craziness. In reality, the real news was she was a passenger, the car was parked, I think she did have the coffee between her legs, but she I'm assuming she was adding cream and sugar. Right. <laughs> um, she really did get burned, and apparently what really infuriated the jury was that McDonald's had been warned some several hundred times that the coffee was too hot. Right. And never changed the temperature of the coffee as it served, meaning you have a jury that's really infuriated about McDonald's not doing the right thing. Right. So there is the difference between what actually happened and the actual case. And uh, I'm sorry, and it's coming to me now. The name of that case was Leibach versus McDonald's Restaurants way back in 1994. The other part of the news that didn't get circulated was the judge on his own reduced the verdict on a process of what's called remitter from 1.2 million to $450,000. So none of that got, none of that hit the news. Just the stuff about a crazy old lady driving around. So here's a side question. Obviously, we're capped here in Ohio. Is other states like this capped or is there an unlimited? I guess I'm looking at the other 49 states. Is it all over the board or? I would guess that if you follow the presidential election, the states that went with Mr. Trump right. probably have some sort of tort reform and cap on damages. Okay. In Ohio, Ohio lawyers can only practice in Ohio, so I tend not to study other courts or other jurisdictions' uh, laws, but my suspicion would be a lot of those do. The thing you said about fake news, I, I like that idea because when you think about what happened in the Simpkin case and in the McDonald Coffee case about fake news is it's all about the insurance money. Right. And let, let's not kid ourselves. The church in this case wasn't coming out of pocket. It was the church's insurance carrier that had all the money on the line. Right. Now, in the McDonald case, it certainly was McDonald's that they were going after. But the, the spin on it for the years that followed was all an industry level spin to save insurance companies money. And it's unfortunate, but the young lady in Simpkin got caught in a battle of insurance issues in the state of Ohio. You know, certain issues take on a life of their own, and it just doesn't seem to fail, but when people get hurt and there are large verdicts, the business interest and the insurance interest always criticize those decisions. It's just a bad idea for business is what they proclaim, and so they fire up the industry, the excuse me, the insurance and business industries, they they have the money to try to influence state legislatures, and so you will see around the country caps on tort damages. Ohio certainly not alone. In Ohio, a cap punitive damages also, and so I think about fake news. Juries not told about caps. But they're also not told that an insurance company is really sitting in that seat there. I try a lot of uh, cases that involve personal injuries from car accidents. You will have your case thrown out if you try to tell the jury, this person has a $100,000 policy with State Farm. Why are we talking about the little old lady that caused the accident? So here's a crazy question. If, if there's a cap of 350 or 450 and it's State Farm or it's McDonald's Corporation or some large entity, why don't they just write the check and say, hey, I'm not gonna, we're not going to go through the media. We're not going to go and spend hundred grand on attorneys. They, why, 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 isn't, why doesn't that happen if it's capped like that? It, and it does happen. 
Okay. Almost every case you see, if it's a good enough case to breach the caps, it'll be settled at the cap level. Okay. The attorneys in this case, and very, very good lawyers, thought that they had a chance to, to hold these caps unconstitutional. So they went to a jury verdict so that they could appeal it if the, if the trial judge okay, didn't hold it. Sense. But yeah, that's what happens in tort reform. Once you put the caps on, the insurance company wins because 95% of your cases, they're going to get a settlement. Right. And probably for under the cap, because if I know I'm capped at 350 and the insurance company is offering me 300, what incentive do I have to go to trial for another 50,000? Right. Right. So I'd like to get back to this issue of tort reform in that, in addition to business and insurance interests criticizing just the awards, they like to criticize juries, right? The jury was wrong. But, you know, John had an interesting comment about that's the system. Why why don't you talk more about that, John? I mean, that's where we are. That's the system we've all agreed on. I teach uh, at the law school, and when the McDonald's case was a big issue and everybody knew about it, I'd spend a half hour and I would bet my class that I could convince them that that verdict was the right thing. And it wasn't based on the facts of the case. It was based upon our jury system. And this is a system we have in the United States and certainly in Ohio. Our Constitution guarantees us a right some people don't understand this, not only in a criminal case for a jury, but in a civil case. So you have an absolute right to a jury trial. And that jury decision, good, bad, or indifferent, is the system we chose. So when we think about it as we gave those people the right, the ability, the obligation to make a decision in this case, we we have to, if we're going to uphold our system, live with the result. Listen, a lot of jury verdicts come back and people are disappointed that have brought the case, more so than than the big verdicts. And so you got to accept the good with the bad. Here's another aspect about it. Business interest, insurance interest like to criticize juries. But guess what? We allow juries to send people to death row. Right. We allow them to handle matters of life and death. I don't hear juries being criticized for their decisions, but let them award a million dollars against the church. Oh, my goodness. We can't have that. Well, but you would think there's a process in place for appeals and stuff. So, you know, if if for some reason the jury erred, then it would obviously go to an appeals court or Mm -hmm. work its way up all the way to the Supreme Court, possibly. There's a lot of safeguards, and it starts with the trial judge. The trial judge is... Uh, allowed under law to reduce the verdict or order a new trial. Then there's the Court of Appeals, which everybody has an automatic right. It's one of the least expensive things you can do. It costs, I think, uh, somewhat under $100 to file oh, wow. the, okay. the filing fee for an appeal. A lot of safeguards for it. The problem is this, though, Curtis. It's expensive. Our civil justice system has become so expensive now that a lot of people that could otherwise have been compensated and maybe 20 years ago, lawyers would have taken those cases, never see the light of day because it's just too expensive. Right. You know, if I know that I've got to go all the way to the Supreme Court in a case and I'm likely to be capped at 350000 I may spend my time as a lawyer on other cases. Right, right. So, no, that makes sense. To flush that out a little bit, though, the practical matter is, is that as the plaintiff's lawyer, you're going to ask the jury to award damages, and most often you're going to suggest a number. So now as a lawyer, I'm standing up in front of the jury asking them to believe me, putting my credibility on the line, knowing that the number that I'm suggesting cannot be awarded to my client under the current law because it's going to be capped. 
But these lawyers, being good lawyers, and I've certainly done it in my cases, because we can't tell them that there's a cap on damages, we have to say, what are the full damages, probably suggested a multi-million dollar verdict. And then the jury would go back, judge would give the jury the law, meaning you can award full and fair damages, there are damages for emotional distress, you know, do your best, come to a consensus. The jury would fill out some forms, they'd all have to sign off, and then in the back room, after the verdict, after they leave, not told anything about it, the judge reduces it to 350000 Right. And it's just disappointing. Let me, let me add something to what John was saying. The jury is actually following written instructions. Those written instructions are based on agreed jury instructions that are used throughout the state of Ohio. The, other, the two attorneys have to agree to exactly what they look like in each case. If they can't agree, the judge has to intervene. But the jury is actually following written instructions. But as John has pointed out, those written instructions don't say anything about the caps. Now, are you able to tell the client that there is a cap or, or okay, so you sure. are able to yeah. disclose that part yeah. of it. Yeah, you have to, you better be telling yeah. the client. Yeah, because I don't think you <laughs> yeah. want to. I'm going to get up there and ask for $5 million, but guess what? Yeah, three fifty is my max. But, uh. but you, and, and, and realize this too, some cases they're fighting liability. Right. So, well, the case, if you win liability, may be worth a million dollars, then the caps would apply. You could lose liability and get nothing anyway because the jury never reaches compensation. So just because, you know, you're asking a jury for a million dollars, you always got to be conscious that they could do a lot less, too. Right, right. Uh, You never know. Every jury is different. So there's been a tug of war between the Ohio legislators and the Ohio Supreme Court for years. Who is currently pushing tort reform or... What entities? Is it the Bar Association? Is it trial attorneys? You know, who's... (laughs) It's not the trial attorneys. Okay. When you speak about tort reform, you can round up the usual number of suspects. Those suspects are, as we've said before, insurance companies. They're probably at the top of the list. People like, or not people, entities like the Ohio Chamber of Commerce any business entities, and probably most Republicans, because the focus is on business. And so the paradigm is big verdicts create instability. Instability is bad for business. Now, when you look at the preamble to the bill that was part of tort reform, you'll see a lot of talk about business interests, about how corporations like stability. You'll see all kinds of things in that bill that talk about business interest. You won't see anything that talks about the interests of people who are injured or how that bill might impact people who are injured. So, By virtue of those interests getting together and lobbying the General Assembly, you get this thing called tort reform. But for years, the courts have protected the individuals. We had a number of tort reform legislation thrown out by the Supreme Court saying it violated really the same arguments they were making in the Simpkin case. Right to a trial, right to a jury trial, open courts, 
these types of constitutional issues were used to shield plaintiffs, victims of torts from the, the legislation. But as the Supreme Court has gotten more conservative, it started, as you can see it over time, starting with Justice Moyers, who's, uh, God bless him, is now deceased. Is You could start to see a conservative bent, and they started to accept the legislature changing the tort system. And now it's not even a close call. Right. I've done some research, and I can track at least four cases starting in 1994 where the Supreme Court declared tort reform statutes to be unconstitutional. But then in 2007, with a case called Arbino and a completely different composition of justices, things changed right now. All of a sudden, what had been considered unconstitutional was now suddenly constitutional. So here's another question, and maybe, again, we're trying to educate folks, you know, on the Mm -hmm. law and and what's there and stuff. And without mentioning any firms or any, you know, any individual attorneys, we, you know, you always see these personal injury lawyers and stuff, you know, I don't get paid until you get paid. And I won a jury, you know, 800,000. Technically, they won the jury, but it, you know, you still have those caps, correct or no? You do, but but if uh, first of all, lawyers are held to a lot of uh, strict requirements in their advertising. Right. So if one of these lawyers got on the TV and said, "I got a verdict for seven hundred fifty thousand, yes, it could have been capped. But remember, there's exceptions to the cap. So that could have been a case where an exception applied, and they did get that kind of money for their for their client. The other thing that I think that we're starting to see that may explain why the uh, the courts have, have adopted more of a acceptance to tort reform is political makeup of our judiciary now. I think that special interests have seen how powerful the courts can become and start to get like-minded people to run for judicial positions. You know, all the money that's spent at the Supreme Court level statewide to get justices on there that are conservative. And it it ends up working out for those special interests and conservative rulings. I know that Jack's done some research into campaign contributions to see if they track the conservative uh, opinions of some of the justices. And I As I recall, you did find some correlation. Well, the New York Times and another group, the name of which I can't remember, studied the Ohio Supreme Court. Now, I don't know why the New York Times was studying our Supreme Court, but it did. And it found a correlation between campaign contributions and decisions. But, But, you know, you shouldn't be surprised by that. That sounds stunning. But really, judges are human beings, right? They are susceptible to all the human frailties that anybody else has. And certainly, I don't. every judge would say that he's impartial and looks at a case without bias. And on a conscious level, I'm sure he's being honest. But the reality is people make decisions based on subconscious forces. And when you're getting substantial money from important interests, I think it's hard on the subconscious level for you not to react accordingly. I think we're just asking too much of people not to. I I may be a little more naive than that. I think it's more if I come from a business background, maybe I was in the Chamber of Commerce, run or own small businesses. If somebody wants me then to run for political office because I have a very conservative business outlook, don't want to spend money, I want more tort reform, I want caps on damages to help business. It's not that I'm doing it because the money is funding my campaign. I'm doing it because 
those interests align with mine and we can all help each other. I think that mentality has now moved into the court system, especially at the statewide level. I believe at the county level, it's probably not as prevalent. Trial judges don't, just don't have that much of an effect on overall policy like that. Their, their decisions don't have the wide-ranging effect. Right, right. So what does tort reform mean for the average citizen? It is probably difficult for the average citizen to understand how it impacts them until they are involved in a a serious accident, collision, or, or some serious harm comes to them. I'll give you an example. When you're in an automobile accident, Ohio law requires the person that hit you to have at least $25,000 in liability coverage. It's not very much in a serious accident, right, with with medical costs these days. But Ohio law requires that. It used to require only $12,500. But the law used to require all of us to also have an equivalent on our own policy of underinsured motorist coverage. And the Supreme Court, for years, had upheld that as a mandatory thing that you had to have. Insurance companies could not get rid of it. The Supreme Court legislature and then the Supreme Court did away with that requirement. So people come to me now, they're in a serious accident. Jack and I were talking about some of these cases. Maybe they lost a limb, had some serious head injury. The person that hit them either had no insurance or state minimum and they don't have their own uninsured motors because it doesn't need to be offered anymore. Uh-huh. And insurance companies, to save money, usually will drop that coverage just to show that, they, hey, your, our premium's different than the one you right, had. Right. Well, So they come to me and they say, how could this be? And I say, well, that's tort reform. That's what happened. But how would you know that as an individual without that personal experience? Right. Well, is that something that maybe the legislators should pass some type of checkoff system (laughs) for insurees? Because, you know, how they, when you go to the BMV, they make you sign that paperwork saying that you have insurance, but they never (laughs) ask to see a copy or anything, I guess. That's just another level. I don't like that solution just because it's hard to explain to people what uninsured motorist does and what protection it is. You almost have to make it mandatory. I had in the past tried to sue insurance agents for giving bad advice about that. You cannot do it. Insurance agents aren't held to that standard where if they give advice that's not accurate or not good for their policyholders, there's not a, a for that, so to speak. Right. So it's it's one of those things where I'm not sure a lot of the agents understand how it plays out. Uh, I would tell everybody to check their policy right now. They should at least have $100,000 of uninsured motorist coverage before they get in their car. Right. All of that is dead on. But here's another aspect of, or here's another way of addressing your question in the big picture. That is, how does tort reform affect us? Well, when you put these caps on, two things are going to happen. One, not every case can be taken because of the economics. When a lawyer takes on a case, and and generally personal injury attorneys are doing things on a contingency fee basis, that is they are not getting paid unless the client prevails. Part of that case involves perhaps hiring experts, a reconstruction expert, You might have to video a day in the life of the plaintiff so that the jury can see what it's really like on a day-to-day basis for this plaintiff to get around. Well, those are hard expenses that the lawyer has to front. So if the case is going to have a cap limit, it may not be worthwhile for the lawyer to take. Another thing is, and we've shown this through the Simpkins case, 
plaintiffs who are severely injured are not going to be fully compensated. And unfortunately, as John pointed out with the uninsured motorist coverage, these are the things that don't become apparent until a person is involved in an injury. In, in tort reform, is uh, comes in many different sizes. For example, in the med mal, medical malpractice area, over the years they've shortened the statute of limitations. Makes it very, very difficult. If you're an attorney in that area, you need to get on the case really quick because you have a very shortened statute. They have what's called an affidavit of merit now that has to, not now, it's been in the books for a while, that has to be filed before you can file a complaint, meaning that you already have to have an expert in an affidavit state that your case against these physicians, at least at a base level, is valid. So when you put up these types of hurdles or roadblocks, lawyers are going to be a lot more selective in the cases they take. Right. That makes sense. So where's the future? Where are we going with tort reform? Or where would you like to see it go, I guess, Well, to answer question. your first question, we're going nowhere good. That's for sure. Okay. <laughs> I'm probably more optimistic than Jack. I think with things like this, the political, the conservatism, there's always a swing. Seems like it gets to one side of the pendulum and then it starts to swing back, and I'm hoping it does. Certainly, when I was a new lawyer, plaintiff's lawyers were in their heyday. They were making a lot of money on cases that probably shouldn't be filed or certainly now would not have been filed. And then it, it got to a point where it's just very, very difficult on the plaintiff's side to, to bring the uh, reasonable and, and valid cases now to a jury and I hope it swings back. I think it will before I retire. So Jack's got that look on his face <laughs> like he wants to say something but he's just <laughs> holding off. So do you have I guess here's a question for you. You know, you teach uh law classes at Capitol and you know, do you get these new attorneys engaging and, you know, asking that question of why or do they seem to have, you know, do they seem to get it or do they seem to say, hey, I'm waiting for the instructor to tell me, you know, hmm. what's the right thing, the wrong thing? Or have you ever had vigorous discussions? It's that's a great question, Curtis. I would tell you this. We do have some discussions, but like most classes you teach at that level, you end up getting a lot of people staring back at you while you're lecturing, which which <laughs> happens. But I'm a little bit surprised at how would it be unattached the students are. I mean, I know when I was in law school, it was all about my studies. I right. wasn't following politics. I wasn't following the changes in the law. Right. You're just, I'm just trying to learn it so I can take the bar and pass. But I bring people to class for lectures. I brought in personal injury lawyers, defense lawyers, judges, and uh, we do talk about those issues, but I don't press any agenda. I mean, you never know what their real politics are or what they might be of these young people. But I wanted them to understand that every case involves real people right. and that there is a, to me, a certain truth to every case. Right. right. Now, unfortunately, lawyers aren't supposed to be the one to get to that truth. That's the judges and the juries. But I think that we should at least recognize what the truth is and what our role is. Right. Well, we've been talking about tort reform today with Jack and John from the Hall Law Firm. I know that we didn't say this at the top of the podcast, but uh, Mr. Jack has a blog that he writes. Oh, I'm glad Weekly, you... monthly, something like that? Oh, I, I, I think I'm blog... Well, first of all, thanks so much for mentioning that, Curtis. My daughter would be scolding me for not, as she would put it, protecting my brand by mentioning yeah. that. So I do have a blog. It's called Consider This by J.D., 
I write about every three weeks or so, and I write about uh, political and social issues. I write about the death penalty. I write about tort reform. I write about human trafficking. I write about a, a variety of things that I don't think get enough play in the news. So thanks for mentioning that. Not a problem. And then the other thing that I want to mention and, and something that I refer back to as old school. For a full disclosure, Jack is a Democrat. John is a Republican, has a wife that was, that is still a state rep. She is, yes. And this is the way we do old school 20 years ago where, you know, a Republican and a Democrat, whether if you're an attorney or, you know, if that's your political cause – can sit in a room and have a, a discussion like this and to, to give those that background of why certain things should be and shouldn't be. So I give you two kudos because sometimes we probably could bring, you know, <laughs> two different people in here and it might be a war or a fight or something, but you guys seem to gel and go by the law and go by the, the facts of the law. You could see how I'm somewhat conflicted doing plaintiff's work for all those years, yet being a Republican. Right. Often at conventions or at the table at a, at a banquet, I'm with Pat T. Berry, our yeah. representative in Congress, or, you know, uh, Governor Kasich. And they'll tease me at times, but also I try to stick up for what I believe is the jury system, the rule of law, the way I think it should be, if not uh, a lot of people on the left, or at least the moderates. Definitely. Well, thank you for joining us today, talking about tort reform. Listen for more podcasts here. We'll be pushing them out via Jack's blog and through the B-Hall uh, website and our media through True Media Group. So thanks, Jack. Thanks, John. Curtis. Thank th you, Curtis. Curtis, thanks for the opportunity. We had fun. Yep. Thank you.